0: Good evening, everyone. 7:30 is upon us. I want to start promptly, and while I appreciate everyone's zeal and enthusiasm last week, I will govern myself better so that we can have question period and still be done at 8:30 and we can all get home at it. I know no one could just let you know I want to be a little more governing of that. Let's ask for the Lord to bring grace upon our time tonight in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We are so grateful to have been called into communion with your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in the light of his glorious resurrection. We praise you. By dying, he has destroyed our death. By rising, he has restored our life. And so in praise, Lord, enlighten our minds to explore the effects and the glories of the holy resurrection. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's topic is titled, The Resurrection and the Holy Eucharist. The Resurrection and the Holy Eucharist. It's not a course on the entire doctrine of the Eucharist. It is about the, the implications and the resurrection account, how our Lord reconfirms, reteaches, if you will, not reinstitutes, but sort of reconfirms the power of the Holy Eucharist. I do want to, I think a lot of us know this, but I want to give a basic doctrinal definition of the institution of the Eucharist, because our Lord gives the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist before His Passion, Cross, and Resurrection. You know this in the liturgical celebration as Holy Thursday, the Last Supper. So it's a pre-resurrection gift to the church, like Holy Baptism. All right. uh, the church fathers will also teach Uh, Confirmation is one of those great questions, all right, because uh, it seems that the fathers of the church always taught that when our Lord is baptized and then the Holy Spirit, that that's an institution of confirmation. That's why forever, not forever, for many years in the Christian church, baptism and confirmation were administered simultaneously. So if you're baptized as an infant, you're also confirmed as an infant. If you're baptized as an older child and adult, confirmed right away. And so those sacraments of initiation, as we call them, baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist, are all given by our Lord pre-passion and resurrection, but vivified by right? If Jesus is not resurrected, none of this matters. That's the right way of saying it. So I want to start by giving, again, <clears throat> it's not going to be a whole doctrinal explanation of the Holy Eucharist but I want to give a doctrinal footing, right? right? I'm going to read from what's called the Catechism of the Council of Trent. I'm reading from this document because the Council of Trent is the ecumenical council. We're most familiar with the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, and there's a catechism published after that. But this is a little more narrative in form. That's what I'm going to read from this to give our... And frankly, the two teachings haven't changed until so they teach the same thing. So this is sort of... The doctrinal grounding, I think most of you will be familiar with this. It says, it will be necessary, necessary that pastors, that's me, exp- following the example of the Apostle Paul, who professed to have delivered to the Corinthians what he received from the Lord, first of all, explain to the faithful the institution of the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. So here we go, that's what I'm going to do. Right. That its institution, i mean, the institution of the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, was as follows is clearly inferred from the evangelist St. John. Our Lord, quote, "...having loved his own, loved them to the end." Remember that quote, please, from, from St. John, right? "...having loved his own, he loved them to the end." This is John chapter 13, verse 1. "...loved his own." He lo-. We read this on Holy Thursday. "...as a divine and admirable pledge of his love, knowing the hour had now come that it should pass from the world to the Father that he might not ever, at any period, be absent from his own. That he might never, at any period, be absent from his own. He accomplished with inexplicable wisdom that which surpasses all the order and condition of nature. For having kept the supper of the Paschal Lamb with his disciples, that the figure might yield to the reality. Remember the figure of the Passover lamb. The Jews were told you must sacrifice the lamb. And smear the blood. So that the angel of death will pass over. Right. So that's the figure. The reality is coming. That's why the Lord Jesus institutes the Holy Eucharist. In the context of the Passover meal. As a side note. If you wish to do private study on this, a book recently published called "Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Holy Eucharist" is an excellent book. "Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Holy Eucharist." It was written by a man named Dr. Brandt Petrie. Some of you might remember a couple years ago we read the book "The Case for Jesus," written by that same uh, professor Petrie. Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Holy Eucharist. So having kept the supper of the Paschal Lamb with the disciples, that the figure might yield to the reality, the shadow to the substance, it then quotes the Scriptures. He took bread, and giving thanks unto God, he blessed and broke, and gave the disciples, and said, Take you and eat. This is my body, which shall be given up for you. Do this for a commemoration of me. In like manner also, he took the chalice after he had supped, saying, This chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you shall drink it in commemoration of me. That's the institution of the Holy Eucharist. The real presence of Jesus Christ. Body, blood, soul, and me. This is my body. This is my blood. Again, this is not a doctoral presentation on the Holy Eucharist. This is, of course, expounded in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6. The so-called Bread of Life discourse. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you do not life life within you. I say to you, you must eat the flesh and drink the blood. And in that John chapter 6, using the words eat, that translates more properly, unless you gnaw on the flesh of, of the Son of Man. Right? And of course, this scandalizes many of even the disciples. If you read John chapter six, famously, John chapter six, verse sixty-six, right? So John six sixty six, the demonic name. Saints, and many of His disciples left Him and returned to their former way of life. Right. So now we're going to move forward to the resurrection account because you have to understand this is beautifully demonstrated in the movie The Passion of the Christ. Be- there's many beautiful scenes. There's a scene in that film when our Lord is being raised up on the cross that in the scene the fl- this, it flashes between the Apostle St. John and our Lord being raised on the cross and the Last Supper. As they have the words, this is, So you see Jesus at the Last Supper saying, This is my body given up for you. And then he elevates, and then you see the crucifix go up, and you see the... John's like, Oh, I get it. Right? That's why that same apostle John, when it's such a curious thing, right? To give evidence that Christ was dead on the cross. They wanted to write, if you remember the count... Pilate said, go break their legs so they die before sunset. Suffocate faster. Well, our Lord is already dead. They ask him not to break to his legs because that's rude and nasty. But to validate that he's dead, remember he takes a spear and thrusts it his suicide. And immediate outflows blood and water. Right, And there's that fascinating line. The one who has testified has seen what he testifies to. And his testimony is true. This is the awareness that the Apostle St. John has. This is is how the body and the blood. But of course, if Christ stays, not to be impious, but if Christ stays and rots in the tomb, then the figure has not passed over to the reality. So this gets to the very important account in the Gospel of St. Luke. And it's most interesting... That it is the Apostle St. Luke, excuse me, the Evangelist St. Luke who accounts this, not St. John. Right? Now the church fathers said that because they believed, I said this last week, it is generally believed, it's not proved in Scripture, but it's believed that of the 72 disciples that the Lord sent out early in his ministry, St. Luke was one of the 72. And so he had an account of this because he, he knew all the other Right. It's not that the 12 were utterly separate from the 72, but the 12 obviously have a very special role there together with themselves and our Lord more frequently than the 72 are. So it seems more likely that St. Luke would have known these others right, who are on the road to Emmaus, and that's why he accounts for it in his gospel, whereas St. John does not. Right? So to recap a little narrative, early in the morning before the sun rises... Mary Magdalene and the other women go out to the tomb. They find the stone rolled back and the tomb not empty, right? Burial cloth, cloth covered his head, angels testify. Our Lord is not there. Where is our Lord? Visiting his blessed mother. Right? They run back and tell the apostles, Peter and John, come. They see the tomb without our Lord's body and the shroud and the facial cloth, right? The shroud of Turin and the veil of Antipelo. They leave. Our Lord appears to Mary Magdalene. See, the Apostle St. Paul says that our Lord appeared to St. Peter. The Gospels do not relate that our Lord appeared to St. Peter individually. The Apostle St. Paul states that. So that's understood. He appears to Mary Magdalene. Tell my brothers. He appears to the Apostle Peter. And Peter and John go back to the upper room. And during this time, there are some of the disciples, not the twelve. By now, of course, this is eleven now. Judas has hanged himself, so of the eleven that remain. That's why this is the the afternoon, all right? So all these things happen in the morning. And this moves us to the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 24. Right. Now I'm going to start on verse 10. They've seen the, the tomb, right? Verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other with him, other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home wondering what had happened. Concealing claws, then our Lord appears to Mary Magdalene, right? She thinks he's the gardener, and then Saint Luke, on verse thirteen, accounts this. He says, "That very day, so that meaning Easter, the first Easter Sunday, that very day, two of them, two of who? (laughs) It is understood that two of the disciples. All right, so two of them." We're going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. As a side note, this you see is recurrent. On actual Easter Sunday, people have a hard time recognizing Jesus. Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him. He comes in, they're afraid and think he's a ghost. The, they don't recognize him. After that, everyone recognizes him quite clearly. All right? We'll read later. It's later in Galilee. The Apostle John sees him from afar from the boat. Oh, that's the Lord. Right? But on Easter Sunday, again, I talked about this last week. The total shock. The total unexpectedness. Of it. The total elation of Palm Sunday, combining with the harshness of the cleansing of the temple, and then the horror of the Passion, the crucifixion. As, and as a reminder, these are people completely dominated by the Roman Empire. Right? Socio, politically, militarily, economically, utterly, do- the governance of their everyday life is under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so that you would regularly see people scourged and crucified. And this person who seemed so unique has now has this exact same thing happening to him. Utterly obscures all the hope-filled things that you had. Right? Just a reminder, because like, we bask in two millennia of civilizations built on the confession of the resurrection. So it's easy for us to be the, like, how did they not know? Right? That's why I just want to put it within that context of the horror of that all would easily have obscured those things. So they're discussing together, and Jesus draws near, but they don't recognize him. So it continues verse seventeen, and he, Jesus, said to them, "What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk?" And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, Answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I'm going to, I get all excited about this, but I'll continue before I make comment. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And now our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back and said they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Right? We remember that testimony. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, Peter and John. And they found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish man, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Now before we get to the Eucharistic part of this, do you see the setup of the Holy Mass, right? See in this, as it were, the Liturgy of the Word. Jesus is there. When we hear Old Testament stories, do we always think, oh, that's talking about Jesus. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Do we get all the Christological things in the Psalms? Sometimes yes, sometimes. So do we always recognize? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. As we go deeper into it and he walks along, he has that, that beautiful freedom of question. What are you talking about as you walk along the way? Are you the only one who doesn't know these things? What... Things, right? This is the power of prayer. What? God knows all, right? Who's the one person that knows all these things that have happened? Jesus. He know, right? He knows. But he doesn't say, let me let me tell you. He says first, what things, right? From the Psalms, O oh Son, give me your heart. Tell me what things. Tell me what's going on. Have converse with me. Let it out. Prophet, mighty in word and deed, God and all the people. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. These people are telling us, right? I have this hope. I have this dream. I experienced so many things that validated that this would be the case, but now these things are challenging it. And then people tell me I should not lose hope, but I'm not sure if I believe that. What? That's So the sharing of the heart, right? The life of prayer in the sacred scriptures. Continues. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he appeared to be going on further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in To stay with them. Read here the creed. Mm -hmm. Confessing faiths, all right? In the proclamation of the Gospels and the explanation. And then as we go up to the altar, Mm -hmm. we go there. Where is the altar of God in Israel? In In the city. A little side note here. Notice. Our Lord is not... Resurrectedly convowed in the Eucharist in the city, right? He institutes the Holy Eucharist in the city, in the upper room, in the city of Jerusalem. This is my body given for you, where he suffers and is crucified in the city, right? Because remember, in the scriptures, in the scriptures, who is the founder of cities? Cain, the first murderer is the founder of cities, right? Cities are where bad things happen. Christ has to go to the city of Jerusalem to be rejected and suffer and die. And then on the third day be raised. And where does he testify to the glory of his resurrection? In a village, right? In In a small place. Share your heart. Let me teach you the scriptures, right? The first Bible study on Easter Sunday. And then come in. Right? Constrain Jesus by the act of faith. Now, when he was at table with them, verse 30, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then in verse 31, and their eyes were open and they recognized him, And he vanished out of their sight. We'll continue. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, who said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. All right. So here's the testimony of the resurrected Christ appearing to Simon. Simon Peter, right? And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Eucharistic confirmation. The Eucharistic convalidation. That where will you recognize Jesus? In the sacrament. Where will you Your heart will burn in all kinds of places. Notice, they didn't say our hearts were burning when we ate the bread. They don't say that. The hearts are burning while he explained on the way. But when did they know it was Jesus? Breaking of the bread. That's why it says in the Acts of the Apostles, right? After after, uh, Pentecost, they persevered in Listening to the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of the bread, <laughs> and prayer. Mm-hmm. This is what the church does until forever and ever, till the end of time we do that. Mm-hmm. Where will you see Jesus in the Holy Eucharist? Mm-hmm. Notice even in an apparition, like St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, visionary of the Sacred Heart, right? When our Lord, like she'll be in adoration, And then one of two things will happen. She'll be in adoration before the sacrament, and then the sacrament will, as it were, disappear, and she sees Christ. Or Christ disappears, and she sees the sacrament, right? Not both at the same time. Hmm? Because, in a sense, the one is the other, right? Seeing the one is the other. She's favored in these graces, right? Yes. This is such... Again the road to Emmaus has been called the life of the church in 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 miniature. We're going out, we're on the highways and the byways, wherever that may be, two by two, four by four, six by six, whatever it is. We've got to talk about the things that are on their heart. We have to have the teaching authority that explains to us what's going on. And then where do we see Jesus? At the Mass, at the breaking of the bread. right. Uh, we, as it were, constrain him. It's, it's such, it's, I love the beautiful translation here. They constrained him, saying, stay with us. We build churches, right? We constrain Jesus and say, stay with us. Right? And that's, in a sense, a very righteous and good thing to do, to constrain Jesus and say, stay with us. Evening draws near, right? Yeah. Evening is a time of confusion, Things seen clearly are now difficultly seen. The warmth becomes cold. People who are afraid to do evil in the open now creep out to do it in the darkness. The evening is coming. We need the presence. Our hearts were burning, but we didn't see Him until the breaking of the bread. See, now the figure has passed to the reality what they did in the last supper is a memorial that makes real that's why it is a commemoration. right it's a memory together with the reality yes when we say mass we do remember right we, rem- we are remembering but it's a co-remembering the remembering is side by side with the reality And the reality is the recognition of Jesus. Jesus incarnate of the Virgin Mary at the uh, Incarnation, born in Bethlehem, teaching uh, by the Sea of Galilee, multiplying the loaves, suffering on the cross for our sins, risen in glory. That Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because now in Jesus it's all... It's all him, right? He's the one, he knows it all. In a sense, right, your life is entirely, in a sense, your life is always present to you. Now, we don't have divine minds. We have defects of memory. We can forget things, right? But your life and your experiences are always present to you. So in a sense, I can be present to your experiences when I'm present to you and vice versa. We, of course, have the happy limitation of not being God. So God creates that joyful co When we are at Mass, we are wherever Jesus was. And Jesus is wherever we are. And that constraining is a very happy one. It's a very joyful one. We'll see next week when we talk about confession, because, of course, this is not the last appearance of our Lord on Easter Sunday. It's the middle one, right? Jesus will go back into the city again deal with sin but notice he's out of the city when he talks about the joy of the Eucharist the breaking of the river is outside the city it's away from the hustle and bustle and all this but it's constrained thus churches so he can be present with us until the end that is the resurrected power that is the resurrection and the Holy Eucharist that's the might of the road to Emmaus Luke chapter 24 is, in terms of apologetics, the second best apologetic on the real presence, right? First best is John chapter 6. Second best is Luke chapter 24. Third best is 1 Corinthians 15, all right? Remember this, he loved his own and he loved them to the end. To the end of what? To the end of all, right? He's here until the end of all things. In the breaking your heart always always won't burn the most, right? That's why, you know, we go to retreats and spiritual talks and have deep conversations or hear a song, and then we get really jacked up. Our hearts burn, and that's good. But the recognition. Is in the breaking of the bread, the Holy Eucharist, and that is Easter glory. Okay. Stop my presentation there. Questions, comments, confusions, curiosities. Scott Hahn has uh, written and spoken about that passage, um, scriptural passage about Jesus being recognized in breaking the bread with the two disciples at. MAUS as being one of the definitive statements of the true presence in Jesus. It just is just so powerful and, and actually has been very persuasive to those that haven't believed. Yes, it can be something that is very strengthening when people have doubts about the real presence. That it can become active here. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Questions or curiosities? Uh, Could you tell me again uh, the name of that doctor that wrote that book? Dr. Brandt, B R A N T, Petrie, P I T R E, Petrie, P I T R E. Dr. Bant, the Brandt Petrie. Is a relatively young man. I think he's my age or a little bit younger. Uh, very bright fellow who got his doctorate at the University of Notre Dame. There he befriended a uh, Protestant minister, the Reverend John Bergsma, and converted him to the Catholic faith. And now Dr. Brandt Petrie and Dr. John Bergsma are, at least in the English-speaking world, probably the two foremost biblical scholars. Uh, Dr. Brandt. Petrie does a great deal of work with basically archaeology and the sacred scriptures. How the archaeological record validates the sacred scriptures. Dr. John Bergsma is an expert in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls or the Qumran Scrolls, and point to how it is co- what the argument he makes most convincingly. Again, this. Again, I'm not giving you a doctoral thesis on the road to Emmaus. That's multi-levels, right? Sometimes it is commented that the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist cannot be true because it would have been so foreign to contemporary Jewish believers that the Messiah would never have done something so ridiculously foreign and out out of sync, right? Dr. John Bergsma has tremendous knowledge about the Dead Sea Scrolls that shows that, because the Dead Sea Scrolls are um, manuscripts that date to the time of Christ, right? Found in these caves called Qumran out by the the Dead Sea, etc. That showed that we cannot, because a lot of our contemporary experience of Judaism is rabbinical Judaism or Pharisaical Judaism. The Judaism we now know in our own day, really that we have known basically since the year 70 A.D., when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish priesthood ends and all the Jewish sacrifices end. So all these sacrifices that prefigure the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and that atonement get wiped away. And really all that's left is what was equivalent to the, the Pharisees. What The Pharisees argued, the temple, it doesn't matter that much. Obeying the law is what matters. So the law doesn't have sacrifice and so on and so forth. So that's where you have a lot of contemporary Protestants who date their theological groundwork to the 16th century, Luther and the Reformation. And I don't say that to be a jerk. I'm just saying that's factual understanding. Don't don't have that comprehension, and so Dr. Brandt I'm getting a little far, but Dr. Brant Petrie and Dr. Berg's wrote write in detail. What I like about Dr. Brandt Petrie is he's trying to write to ordinary people. Right? He's trying to write high theology in a way that ordinary people can understand. Otherwise, you get lost in language and terms and all this kind of stuff. So, okay. Great. I've ever heard the road to Emmaus being the miniature um, life of the church in miniature. Many- yeah, that, I'm seeing that from Fulton Sheen. Fulton Sheen said that first. I didn't come up with that. All right, that's, that's amazing. It, it is, becomes the rhythmic of the entire life, all right? So if you're feeling a little out of wonk, or Because, again, the life of the church can get bound up in so many... And you see it explained the road to Emmaus. Again, we had these hopes, but then these ladies said this, but then some of our leadership went, and they didn't see it, so who knows what all this is. Mm-hmm. Right? So in a very real way in Emmaus, their faith in the church, you might say, because you can see this as they're about... They're sort of... Again, not, this might be taking the analogy too far, but these guys are, as it were, leaving the church, Right? The the apostolic college is in Jerusalem, and they're going away. The breaking of the bread is where they recognize Jesus. It is important that Jesus breaks the bread outside the city, conveys it outside the city. Because part of it is showing, number one, Eucharistic worship is not limited to Jerusalem. Because that could have been a clear misunderstanding. I instant the Holy Eucharist in Jerusalem, and at my resurrection, I confer it in Jerusalem. Maybe it's just like the original temple. It only happens in Jerusalem. This clearly, no. It happens outside the city. That the life of Eucharistic worship can be outside the city of Jerusalem. In the highways and the byways, right? But what it does is, what does it cause them to do? Hustle back to the city. Hustle back to the communion of the apostles and realize, oh, it's not just that we had some late, you know, ladies are very emotional and they get very excited about things, so it's hard to know if we can trust what they said, right? And then we went to the apostolic college, but they don't seem to know what's going on. But now we are reconfirmed and saw Jesus in the breaking of the bread, and that caused our reunification with the apostolic college. And wouldn't you know it? Peter saw Jesus. So that, that return to Jerusalem is an icon of how Eucharist keeps unity of the church. If you maintain Eucharistic worship, you will, maybe it'll be a strike, maybe you'll have to re- walk back from a long ways in the middle of the night, but you will maintain communion with the church if you maintain communion with the Holy Eucharist. If you reject communion with the Eucharist, then who knows what will happen to you. Hard to say. So the- statement by the two disciples we thought he would be the one who etc it seems they're trying to evaluate everything in the context of the god's covenant with the chosen people the the covenant They, they haven't understood the new covenant and really what it seems to be is that they just had a really hard time understanding suffering which again that's that's old news right most people who have suffered intensely or witnessed intense suffering have a hard time. What does this have to do with God? Right? What does this awful, gruesome suffering have to do with salvation? The redemption of Israel. Too much. Can't be. Right? Oh, which is a common trope in human history, right? What is one of the biggest things that shakes people's faith? Intense suffering. Especially if that intense suffering is not to themselves but to someone they love. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was scourged and crucified like all these other people were. What what does that have to do with God? What does that have to do with kingship? What does that have to do with the Messiah? And that's their defect, right? Slow of heart. And that's so interesting when he says slow of heart. He doesn't say slow of head, right? He seems to say it's not so much a defect of your intellect. It's a defect of your emotions. (laughs) You're all smart enough guys. You know what I said. You heard. You know it. The defect is here. That the, the suffering that you witnessed is the, right? That the crucifixion is God's judgment on the world. This is the way we are, but I redeem it. That's why the grave matters more, right? That's why Pontius Pilate is prophetic when the scourged Jesus is held out and Pontius Pilate says the famous, ecce homo, behold man. Right? Like this is, and what does the crowd say when they see man, they write, See how you are. See what you are in sin. And they say, crucify. Not that. Right? In the scriptures it says, take him away. Crucify him. So now these disciples, who very likely didn't witness it firsthand. It's unlikely they were there in the crowd. It's also entirely likely they had seen crucifixions before and didn't feel the need to see this one. But sufferings what they couldn't comprehend. And we shouldn't be too judgmental because any of us who have suffered greatly or witnessed someone we love suffering greatly might have been, even if only for a moment, in the exact same spot. Right? So we shouldn't get too haughty and be like, how, do, how dim are they? How stupid are they? How could they not? No, that, that slowness of heart comes to all that there had to be the suffering, right? That's why the resurrection matters, right? They both, without the one, the other doesn't matter. Without the resurrection, the cross is just stoic suffering, and Jesus is like a great heroic guy who stood firm, and we should all follow that example and endure all pain, which is kind of a grim stoicism, right? And that version of Christianity did arise, right? That's what we commonly call Albigensianism, you just got to suffer and gut it out. That's what it is. Right? Christ on the cross. Right? But of course, if you have a resurrection with no passion, well, how does that help me at all? Right. Is, there any, is there any justice in the world? All the cruelty, all the lying, all the lust, all the evil, all the greed. There's just no like whatever. God just sort of presses the... Delete button on it, right? If, if injustice has been done to you, you know that's not that doesn't seem right, right? Every human beings understand, right? You even see this in the animal kingdom, all right? Injustice demands penance, demands restitution. You have to make up for it, right? At the we have, in our, our criminal justicism tries to ape that. It's not enough for someone who does injustice to feel bad about, like they should, right? They have to be incarcerated. And most citizens agree incarceration should not be, you know, at, at the Sundara. Right? That's, there's no justice there. That's resurrection, right? Resurrection without the passion is everybody gets to go to the Sundara. We say, that don't seem right. So that's why the two must be held together. Of course, the suffering's the harder one to come. Because if I said, everybody go be at the Sundara for a week. Ah. Everybody, let's fast for a week. Yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> those, the two tend. So I'm getting sermonetic. All right, sorry about that. But that's why the two must hold together. That's why they're slow of heart to believe. But that's also why Emmaus is the whole life of the church, because we all have moments where we're slow of heart. We have moments where we, oh, I don't remember that Bible passage. This person told it to me. That spiritual writer told it to me. I heard it in that sermon. Oh, I remember now. I got excited. But what's always the same? Where always is the Christ? Breaking of the bread. Okay. I got sermonetic. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's always the that's always question. What does the resurrected Jesus look like? He must look like the not resurrected, because eventually there's moments where they're like, oh, there he is. So he was clearly, the resurrected Jesus is clearly very similar to the Jesus before the resurrection. But also clearly super different, because he can be veiled and doors are locked and he walks through it. This is not a topic on what is the glorified body like, but that's where it is. could be something like Easter Sunday. Actually, the, some of the kids after the uh, 1230 Mass was like, we didn't know who that priest was up at the altar until they heard his voice. Oh, the okay, all right, there you go. Maybe Jesus shaved his beard on Easter Sunday and they didn't. Okay, but there's a good point. If you remember, two years ago, I had... Shaved my beard and cut off all my hair. Now, again, it was on video and whatnot, but a lot of people were like, who is that? Yeah. All right? I so said, just look to the waist and you'll recognize, all right? You'll see it, all right? Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, because you're right. There were, I heard that. Kids were like, who is that priest up there? They don't wreck because I just shaved my beard. I tell people like this. When I go to, like, the grocery store in Civis, not in my clerics or something like that, It's amazing. I'll be right next to people. They have no idea who I am. People who are churchgoers and and whatnot. I'll even say hello. Hey, how are you? And they won't, because they're (laughs) they're expecting a certain look. Yes, black and collar and all of this. So again, when you see like, what would you you saw that this guy was scourged and crucified. So he's resurrected. Like what? Right, but you don't know that, like, because, you know, you're the ladies who are going out with spices. What they expect is obvious. He's dead and needs to be cleaned up. So he's resurrected. What exactly does that look like? Is he not beat up? Is he, pardon? He had the wounds that he didn't have prior. Right, so he had, but like, would he have the lash marks? Would he have the mark of the crown of thorns? So you don't know, Right. So when you see this person, you're not make like, oh yeah, that looks like Jesus. Because you have so many different expectations in your mind. Yeah. You don't to see him, right? You're not, again, that's one thing that is clear as a bell. They had all heard he must suffer on the third day. Right, you know, the angels tell them, and it says, and they remembered his words. right? Again, if you've all had that moment where... You're taking a test, or you're having a conversation, and you say the wrong thing, and then the person says the right thing. You're like, "Duh, I knew that." All right? this is like that. All right, they all, the angels say, "He say, oh, that is how what foolish you are. How foolish you are. Slow of heart. That happens. Right, it happens.' So. once again." Living in a religion that is built on the resurrection that has been confessing that for two millennia, it's right. For us we read those passages be like like you walk to this guy for three years almost every single day and you can't see him, walk in right next to you like what? Right, but yeah. The unexpectedness of it. As a super radical sidebar, here's why I will promote the movie Apocalypto. All right, somebody was talking with some people about this yesterday. A lot of people have complained that Mel Gibson never made a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. Right? You know, the last scene of The Passion is Jesus getting up out of the tomb shows the beautiful scene. But everyone wants give the appearance... like that'd be awesome. Give us a dramatic of what the resurrection is actually like and let us see Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter and the road to Emmaus and all that kind of stuff. Okay. People have made the argument that I agree with that the sequel to The Passion of the Christ is the movie Apocalypto, which is set roughly 1,500 years after the resurrection in uh, what we now call Mexico centered around it gets very i won't try it will take too long to explain the whole movie all right but the the notion is you have this it's centered around the young father of a pagan indigenous tribe who in the bearing river are clearly they're trying to be virtuous right they're oriented around family they're agrarian people they share and all this kind of stuff and their great fear is the domineering Aztec Empire. As you may know, the Aztecs had one of the largest land empires in, in human history. Were massively technologically advanced beyond all of their surrounding places, and like the, I mean, very Roman-like, all right? city-centered, maintained their city by conquering and enslaving neighboring peoples, right? One difference they had from the Roman Empire is their religion was utterly centered around human sacrifices. So that was always a big fear of the tribals. All right. So anyways, long story short, the Aztecs come, they conquer his village, he gets drugged into, right? He leaves, he's taken from the garden, all right? Get that, get the imagery, <laughs> taken out of the garden because of violence and dragged into the city where as the movie progresses you see manifestation of all human vices, now it's in a totally non-Western, non-European setting. But anyone who has ears to hear can hear and see, oh, that's greed, that's lust, that's pride, that's vanity, all right. so on and so forth. He escapes all of that. He has, as it were, his passion. He's hauled up to the temple. He sees other people being sacrificed. He escapes through extreme suffering but his escape is limited because his captors are on his tail. The movie ends with him trying to get back to his village, escaping the city when he runs to the seashore. So he's at the, he can go no further. He cannot save himself. His captors come out of the woods right behind him. And they're about to lay hands on him and drag him back to the city when they all look astonishingly out and what do they see? Four ships anchored out and two boats coming in. One with armored conquistadores and on the other one, two Franciscan friars holding up a big cross, right? The unlooked for, the unexpected. What will be his redemption from this overarching empire centered around human sacrifice and degradation? The cross. But of course, the cross will be contended with by the sword. Right. But what to these, right? So just, it's like the first disciples saw something totally unexpected, right? They had keys to it, right? The movie shows this pagan has all kinds of keys of virtue. He's a virtuous person. But he doesn't know the resurrection. Right? They, right the, those pagans in Mexico famously believed in one God. They had kind of a weird polytheism. They believed like they sort of deified. We don't get into all of that. But they they were monotheists. Right. So they believed in the one God and they believed in virtue. And so now the cross is the unexpected thing. The glory of the resurrection is the unexpected thing. So what I tell people is that if you can watch those two movies and see one as the sequel to the other, you can start to put yourself in the space where the first Christians were or alternate like when St. Bon I know how many of us have German ancestry St. Boniface wandered out to all the Germanic pagan tribes St. Patrick grabs the clover right St. Uh, Augustine of Canterbury has the miraculous well right so they're going out to just heathen pagans we like to use the word heathen and pagan rather loosely you know but like absolute like pre-christian have no idea what you're talking about right It's St. Eric the Ninth, this huge beard, and he says, I'm not gonna be king anymore, I'm gonna go accompany the Bishop of Uppsala into the heathen lands of all the pagan Swedes where they're martyred, right? And their martyrdom, right? They're martyred, and where the bishop's blood falls, all kinds of roses spring in winter, and so all the pagans fall down and realize that their God is true and are converted. Like that, right? See, that's the mindset of the resurrection totally unlooked for totally unexpected but its markers are clear breaking of bread do you understand there must be suffering so that the Christ would rise will you maintain unity with the apostolic college no matter how chaotic and disordered it might appear we'll get to that we'll get to the the power of the apostolic college and like, the resurrection of the papacy and the resurrection of the vocation we'll talk about that Okay, we're perching up on the hour, and I got super sermonetic and talked to movies, so sorry about that. Apocalypto is a super violent movie, not to be watched with kids. Like the Passion, super violent. Like the Passion, all in foreign languages. So the, almost the entire movie of uh, Apocalypto was in the Hatwal. I don't know how good you're in the is, but probably not super great. It has subtitles. Like the Passions, all in Aramaic and Latin, like that. All right. Anything else before we close? In the name of the Father, and Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Have a good night, everyone.